The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. I'm, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. And as some of you may know, October is National Depression Month and our goal in our show today is to really raise awareness about depression, the fact that it can be treated, and um, how prevalent it is in America and around the world. And I'm very happy to, to introduce to you our guest, Dr. Prakash Masand, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Global Medical Education and the chief scientific officer at the Atlanta Institute of Medicine and Research. He has served as consulting professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University Medical Center and director of therapeutic area development, neuroscience medicine at Duke Clinical Research Institute. He is the founder of PsychCME, a leading program for continuing medical education medical education, which was acquired by Optimum Health. He was also named a Distinguished Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine. He's also the author of more than 300 abstracts, articles, and chapters. Um, Dr. Masson, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be on our show today. Thank you, Mary, for having me. I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, you've been a very busy person, Dr. Masson. Um, can you begin maybe by sharing a little bit with our audience what exactly is depression? Um, it's, it's a word that's used to describe many different things. So could you enlighten us? Sure, absolutely. Uh, depression, Mary, is, as your listeners know, a, a normal human emotion. We all experience it at some time during the course of our lives. You know, uh, our lives have ups and downs, and that's normal. Uh, but when we talk about clinical depression or what we also call major depression, uh, that is a serious psychiatric illness that's associated with significant impact uh, on one's functioning, on one's life, uh, and that usually comprises a constellation of symptoms and signs that these individuals manifest every day, most of the day, for at least two weeks in a row. Uh, and some of these signs are a depressed mood, a feeling of sadness, uh, changes in sleeping patterns. Depressed patients typically have difficulty staying asleep. They wake up repeatedly in the middle of the night and in the early hours of the morning. This is in contrast to anxious patients who have difficulty falling asleep. And then they have changes in their appetite. They eat too little and lose weight or eat too much and gain weight. They may have feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness. Their energy levels are low. Their concentration is poor. They have difficulties remembering things. Uh, they have difficulty making decisions. 
And in many patients, they have suicidal thoughts, thoughts about hurting themselves, and sometimes they even do try to hurt themselves. So uh, this constellation of symptoms and signs is what one sees in major depression, and the key is it interferes with their functioning. It's present every day, most of the way, most of the day for at least two weeks in a row in order to meet the diagnosis of major depression. What is the prevalence of depression in America? The lifetime prevalence of major depression in America is approximately one in six individuals in the United States will experience an episode of clinical depression or major depression at some time during the course of their lives. The prevalence is twice as common in women as it is in men. So this is, uh, you know, the commonest psychiatric illness that we have and perhaps one of the most common medical illnesses. In fact, uh, the estimates are that by the year 2020, major depression or clinical depression will be the second leading cause of disability uh, of all the illnesses that we have in medicine uh, as per the WHO. Um, in your opinion, why do you think it affects women more than men? I think there might be several different explanations for that, Mary. One is obviously there are uh, hormonal differences between men and women, and that may be one reason. Another reason could be the expression of distress. Men and women express distress differently in our society. So women are more likely to acknowledge that they feel sad, uh, that, you know, they, they, they feel hopeless, they feel worthless. For men, it's difficult for them to acknowledge often emotions, feeling uh, worthless, feeling hopeless, so that the manifestations of depression in men may be different than the diagnostic criteria we have for major depression. So men may, more, may be more likely to have irritability, more likely to have physical symptoms, more likely to have anger attacks as a manifestation of depression. And since those criteria are not in the diagnostic criteria for clinical depression, some researchers have argued that if you use symptoms that are more specific to how men express their distress, the ratio, the two-to-one ratio of women to men for depression may no longer be uh, prevalent, that the prevalence may actually be the same, and this may be a function of the different manifestations of depression in men and in women. So uh, the other reason could be also, you know, men are less likely to seek help, for psychological problems as compared to women. Uh, although, you know, these studies have been done as epidemiological studies, so they've surveyed people, not just treatment-seeking samples, uh, but large, you know, tens of thousands of patients. So I think there might be several different explanations uh, for this uh, difference in prevalence between men and women. You know, it's interesting because... Um when I first started working in, in this profession, I worked in a residential treatment program for for people with substance use disorders, and I can remember talking to people about and learning about de- depression as anger turned turned inward, and and you know, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it made sense at the time because for a lot of women, they've been culturally told it's not 
Nice ladies don't get angry. And for men, anger is something that is more acceptable. So I, I don't know whether you've ever heard that um, or what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. You know, that's a really good point that you raised, Mary, because kind of in the traditional psychodynamic thinking of depression, that's how, you know, I was taught as a medical student or even as a resident training to be a psychiatrist that depression is anger turned inwards. But you know what's very interesting, Mary? Studies have been done. Some of these studies were done by my colleagues, Maurizio Fava and their group at the Massachusetts General Hospital where I trained, and they have demonstrated that the presence of anger attacks is actually extremely common in patients with major depression and even in patients with bipolar depression. And as many as 30 to 40% of patients with major depression will have what they call anger attacks, spontaneous outbursts of anger and irritability that accompanies the depressive symptoms. So in some ways, they have kind of, uh, you know, countered the notion of uh, depression being anger turned inwards because actually there is anger, there is irritability in patients with depression that is measurable. And as I mentioned, in men, it may be even more than it is in women. Um, you know, part of what, you're, what you are doing is global medical education. And how does um, the depression rate in, in the United States compare to other countries in the world? Another excellent question. Uh, uh, one of uh, uh, very famous researchers in the United States, Dr. Myrna Weissman from Columbia University, actually did studies in different parts of the world to look at the prevalence of depression in different parts of the world using the same diagnostic criteria. And you know what was very interesting, Mary? Your listeners will be very fascinated by this. The rates of depression, as defined by the diagnostic criteria we use in the United States, the DSM criteria, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the rates were the lowest in Asian countries like Korea and Japan. They were the highest in the Middle Eastern countries like Lebanon. And in America, it was also high, not as high as in the Middle Eastern countries, but much, much higher than in the Asian countries. Now, some people have asked, you know, why is that? Why is it that the... Uh, prevalence of depression was low in the Asian countries uh, as compared to, say, the North American uh, population or the European population. And one of the explanations that has been put forward is, again, manifestations of depression in different cultures. So I grew up in India, in Bombay. I trained uh, uh, to be a, a physician and also did my residency in psychiatry in India. And I used to see lots of patients with depression in my outpatient clinic, uh, in my hospital in, in, in Bombay, India. And what was very, very interesting is patients would almost never walk into the clinic and say to me, you know, Dr. Masan, I feel sadness, I feel down, I feel worthless. They would always come in complaining of physical symptoms. They would complain of chronic back pain, pelvic pain, uh, chronic headaches, all kinds of different uh, symptoms and signs that were physical in nature. In China, for example, they don't even acknowledge the term depression. They call it neurasthenia, uh, which is 
referring to kind of a lack of energy, but not specifically sadness or depression. So it's very, very interesting in terms of how uh, depression is is ex- expressed in different parts of the world, which may which may explain these differences. Um, I think that's very fascinating because if we think about um, depression being have a uh, biological nature and component to it, it would make sense that humans experience depression and that our culture may affect how we express it or view it. But if it is biological in nature, then it's something that people across all cultures um, should experience. And we're going to need to go to a commercial break, but maybe we could pick that up after our break. And we'll be right back with Dr. Masala after this commercial. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour of Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Our uh, discussion this afternoon is around depression and the prevalence of depression in America and um, based on our last conversation around the world. And um, our guest today is Dr. Prakash Mathan, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Global Medical Education 
and he's the Chief Scientific Officer at the Atlanta Institute of Medicine and Research. Um, he has served as Consulting Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University Medical Center and Director of Therapeutic Area Development, Neurosciences and Medicine at Duke Clinical Research Institute. He is well-published and has done many other things in his career, and um, we're very thrilled to have him with us today. And in our last segment, Dr. Masson, you know, I, I had, was posing the question around if, if depression is biological in nature, shouldn't all peoples across all cultures experience it in some way? Yeah, you know, uh, interestingly enough, we look upon depression like we look upon other chronic medical illnesses, that the etiology, the cause of depression is not purely biological. We consider it to be you know, biopsychosocial. So there are obviously genetic underpinnings. Uh, you can inherit uh, certain genes that increase the risk that you will develop depression. It runs in families, for example. But then there are psychological factors in one's life, losses, uh, important stressors, uh, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, uh, you know, financial difficulties, problems at work, the personality that you have, and then your social situation also plays a very, very important role. So each of these three factors, biological, psychological, and social, can contribute in different percentages in different individuals in terms of causing depression. So in some individuals, the biological drive, the inherited vulnerability may be so great that you do not need much of a psychological element or a social element, whereas there are other individuals where psychological factors play a much more important role or social factors play a much more important role. And this may help explain the discrepancies in the expression, the manifestations of depression in different cultures and in different parts of the world. Based on the fact that uh, depression is biopsychosocial in nature, um, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about um, postpartum depression, about depression that, that occurs in conjunction with post-traumatic stress disorder, about um, grief versus depression, because uh, the word depression sure. kind of gets lumped for a lot of different, um, you know, ex clinical experiences. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the, the current terminology that we use to diagnose clinical depression or major depression does not really differentiate it based upon the stressors. You know, in, 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 the, in the older diagnostic systems, we had something called reactive depression and endogenous depression. Reactive depression was thought to be in response to reactive stressors in one life, one's life, and endogenous depression was independent of stressors. But the studies essentially found that it didn't matter if stressors produced depression or depression occurred in the absence of stressors. The longitudinal course of the illness, the prognosis, the complications, and the response to treatment was no different. So now we diagnose major depression based upon the criteria that we have, and we may then you know, say that these were the stressors in the patient's lives that andated the depression because that may help you to plan therapy. So let's take postpartum depression as an example. So 
most women, when they give birth to a child, often experience the blues. It's very common. Uh, a little bit of sadness is very common in the postpartum period. It occurs in 70 to 80% of women. But that's not postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is women who meet criteria for clinical depression uh, where they have five out of nine symptoms for two weeks for most of the day, and it interferes with their functioning. And that occurs in one out of ten women who give birth to a child. So the prevalence of postpartum depression is approximately 10%, even though the prevalence of baby blues or postpartum blues is 70 to 80%. Now, one of the very interesting findings, Mary, that we've learned about postpartum depression is that postpartum depression is overrepresented in patients with bipolar disorder. So if you have a woman who presents with postpartum depression for the first time, one should really search hard for the red flags of bipolar disorder. Ask about a history of hypomania or mania because very often that depression is not a major depression. It's actually a bipolar depression, and treatments are very different for major depression and bipolar depression. So that's one of the uh, good clinical pearls about postpartum depression is that it's often a sign of bipolar disorder rather than unipolar depression or major depression. In terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depressive symptoms are not necessarily part of the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, but there is a very high rate of comorbidity of depressive uh, illness in patients with PTSD. So uh, if you have PTSD, you have a much greater likelihood of developing clinical depression or major depression compared to individuals who do not. But the symptoms of PTSD are actually quite different than the symptoms of clinical or major depression. In PTSD, you have re-experiencing of the trauma, you have hypervigilance, uh, you, avoid, you have avoidance behavior of activities which stimulate the traumatic memory. So uh, very different manifestations in PTSD. And then finally, if you look at grief and major depression, in fact, one of the very important changes that have occurred with the most recent diagnostic system, DSM-5, which was introduced by the American Psychiatric Association in May of this year, is prior to DSM-5 and DSM-4 and DSM-3, if you developed depressive symptoms after the loss of a loved one, for up to two months, it was called uncomplicated bereavement or complicated bereavement and you could only diagnose major depression if the patient had suicidality, marked feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness, or markedly severe impairment in their functioning. But in the most recent diagnostic classification, DSM-5, they eliminated that bereavement exclusion. So now, even if you lose a loved one and you meet criteria for major depression within a month or within three weeks or four weeks, you would be diagnosed as having major depression rather than a grief reaction or a complicated bereavement. And the reason they made that change is because the researchers said, you know, losing a loved one is no different than losing a job or losing uh, a home or having another catastrophic uh, event occur in your life. 
So in some ways, why should we give precedence to the loss of a loved one in terms of the bereavement exclusion? We should then give that same exclusion for all losses because other losses can be as devastating as the loss of a loved one. And that's the reason they eliminated that bereavement inclusion. That's one of the important changes in the diagnostic criteria for major depression in DSM-5. Is seasonal affective disorder depression? Another excellent question. So I I lived in Syracuse, New York for 15 years. And uh, for your listeners who are familiar with upstate New York, you know we get a lot of gloomy weather and very little sunshine. And seasonal affective disorder was extremely common. And I would see lots and lots of patients who in the winter months would become depressed. And the answer to your question is, if a person meets criteria for major depression, and even if those symptoms occur only in the winter months, the diagnosis will be major depressive disorder, seasonal subtype. So what we used to call seasonal affective disorder, uh, if you meet criteria for major depression, it is a clinical depression, a major depression, but then you just specify that this is occurring only uh, seasonally, only in the winter months. And just as with postpartum depression, seasonal affective disorder patients are overrepresented at the bipolar end of the spectrum. So if you have an individual who only becomes depressed in the winter months, you should search very hard for the red flags of bipolar disorder because most of these patients will have a bipolar illness rather than a unipolar illness, and they will often have mild symptoms of hypomania when spring rolls around. They become much more active. They sleep less than normal. They are talkative. They have racing thoughts. They have grandiose ideas. Those are some of the signs of hypomania or mania, which is overrepresented in seasonal affective disorder patients, but they still will carry a diagnosis of major depression. I grew up um, west of Syracuse, and I know that at one point Syracuse had less sun than any other place, I think, in the Northeast. <laughs> Plus days of sunshine oh, not just the Northeast. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, it's really, I think, you know, depression seems to be very common, and, you know, we, we hear a lot about it. This is National Depression Month. And um, after we come back from our com- commercial, I wonder if you would talk just a little bit um, about the relation between depression and suicide. You would mentioned it earlier in our first segment, but um, we'll be right back with Dr. Michon after this commercial to talk more about depression and focus on the connection between depression and suicide. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan and Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Out of Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and we are talking about depression, what causes it. We're going to eventually talk about how to treat it. And our guest today is Dr. Prakash Masand, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Global Medical Education and Chief Scientific Officer at the Atlanta Institute of Medicine and Research, as well as um, serving as consulting professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University Medical Center and director of therapeutic area development neurosciences medicine at Duke Clinical Research Institute. He is well published and has done a lot of other important things in his career. Um, Dr. Masson, before we went to break, I, I was asking about the correlation between depression and suicide, which you had mentioned in our first segment. Um, you know, I think with um, certainly the, the shock of Robin Williams' suicide um, locally here in New Hampshire, um, you know, my son has had two friends in the last six weeks commit suicide. Uh, one of our coworkers, neighbor's daughter, committed suicide, and it just seems like there's more, I don't know, there's more awareness or or it's just, there's just more people getting to the point where they do commit suicide. And one of the questions that we're asked is, how do people get to that point? So can you illuminate us on that? Sure, Mary, I'm happy to. Uh, you know, I think it's worth underscoring, uh, Mary, for your listeners that, as, as I mentioned earlier on, impairment is an integral part of the diagnosis of major depression or clinical depression. In fact, functional impairment occurs in 97% of patients with clinical depression or major depression. And this causes disruptions in their social life, in their work, in their schools, in their family life, 
in their interpersonal relationships. So, as you can imagine, the most extreme form of this disruption, of this functional impairment, can lead an individual to feel hopeless and worthless. Life is not worth living. I'm better off dead than alive is something that patients with depression will often say in the depths of their despair, and they may then try to attempt suicide, and unfortunately, they are often successful. In fact, Mary, there are 35,000 suicides every year in the United States. It's the 10th leading cause of death. In fact, there was a recent study put out by uh, the, the CDC uh, talking about, you know, the 10 leading causes of death in the United States. And of the 10, suicide was the only one whose rates went up from 2011 to 2012. The remaining nine leading causes of mortality, their rates went down. So this is a significant public health problem and something that we need to give the same degree of attention like we give to homicides like we give to accidents, like we give to other reasons of unnatural death, premature death. And a lot of these individuals are in the prime of their lives. They have, you know, 60, 70, 80 years to give to society, to their families, to themselves. And we lose them, uh, unfortunately, often, Mary, because of inadequate diagnosis and inadequate treatment. In fact, you know, your viewers will be surprised to know that 50% of patients with depression in America do not receive any treatment. And only one out of three patients with major depression in America receive adequate treatment. This is an illness still underdiagnosed and is still undertreated and isn't given the same degree of respect like we give other lethal illnesses like cancer, like heart disease, like stroke like respiratory disease and all the other medical illnesses that we all acknowledge can cause disability. Why do you think that is? I think there are several reasons for this underdiagnosis, Mary. One, I think many clinicians, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses, often dismiss depressive symptoms as being a normal part of life. You know, when somebody walks into a family physician's office or into an internist's office and says to them, you know, doctor, my energy levels are not as good as they are. I'm not sleeping as good as I used to. They will often be worked up for every medical illness except depression, even though disturbances in sleep and disturbances in energy are an integral part of depression. It should be a part of the initial differential diagnosis it often becomes a diagnosis of last resort, a diagnosis of exclusion. And that's one very important reason for the underdiagnosis. Another reason is many patients may present with physical symptoms. They may present with irritability or anger attacks, as men often do, or certain populations like the elderly or the Hispanic population. Their manifestations of depression may be culturally determined. They may be aged dependent. And if you as the clinician do not consider depression in the differential diagnosis and ask them for those nine symptoms and signs of major depression, you're going to miss the diagnosis of depression. 
And that's exactly what happens all the time in clinical care. So I think it's extremely important for clinicians to be you know, aware of depression, the signs and symptoms of depression, the reasons why we miss the diagnosis. You know, often there is a disincentive to diagnose depression because of reimbursement issues. The insurance company will pay the family physician, the internist, more for saying that the person has tiredness and they uh, tested him for several different illnesses that can cause tiredness and did all these labs and all this neuroimaging and the reimbursement will be higher than if you say you have depression and you'll be reimbursed a paltry sum. That's another reason for the underdiagnosis and misdiagnosis of major depression. Um, this past week, there was National uh, Depression Screening Day. Are there places where people can go other days to get screened for depression? Are there screening tools or? Sure. There are uh, uh, many screening tools that are available uh, that uh, individuals uh, online, uh, mentalhealthscreening.com uh, is a website, uh, our website, Global Medical Education. We have a link uh, to some of the sites that you can go to get screened for depressive symptoms. So absolutely, uh, one can, you know, uh, the, the, the beauty of technology today, the beauty of the Internet today is you can have access to screening instruments, many of which are available on the web, and, and some of them have been well-validated, and they can be used for screening individuals uh, for uh, different psychiatric illnesses, and, and depression is obviously one of them. You'd mentioned that only one in three people get adequate treatment for depression in America. Can you, can you tell us what is adequate treatment? So an adequate treatment would be that they get an adequate dose of an antidepressant for an adequate duration, right? So there are uh, lots and lots of choices of antidepressants and there are adequate doses that have been defined for each of the antidepressants. And an adequate treatment would be getting an adequate dose of the antidepressant for at least 8 to 12 weeks. So that would be one example of adequate treatment. Another example would be that they get psychotherapy, which has been shown to be effective in patients with major depression, particularly psychotherapies like cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal psychotherapy, that they should get at least 10 to 12 sessions of CBT or IPT, that would be considered adequate treatment. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, something that somebody needs treatment for months on end. We are talking about giving an adequate dose of the antidepressant for a period of 8 to 12 weeks, which is how long it takes to achieve remission of the depression. Or adequate treatment in terms of psychotherapy could be 10 to 12 sessions of psychotherapies that have shown to be efficacious in treating depression, like cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal psychotherapy, particularly in mild to moderate depression, psychotherapies work very well. In moderate to severe depression, patients usually need antidepressants plus or minus psychotherapy. So that's what one would consider an adequate trial of medicines and an adequate trial of psychotherapy. And what are some of the uh, treatments for the more uh, complicated or entrenched uh, forms of depression? Sure. As you can imagine, Mary, uh, there are going to be patients who do not respond to the first antidepressant or even the second antidepressant 
or even the third or the fourth. In fact, there was a, a very large study done by the National Institutes of Mental Health. It was called the STAR-D study, the Sequenced Treatment Alternatives for Depression study. And they studied close to 3,000 patients with different levels of treatment, up to four levels of treatment, getting more and more intense and complicated. And what they found is even after four levels of treatment, 30% of patients with major depression had not achieved remission. So in those patients, you may consider something like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. You may consider treatments like transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, a form of it called deep TMS. That's an example of a treatment. And then there are experimental treatments uh, that are helpful for people who fail numerous trials of medicines uh, like intravenous ketamine. It's an anesthetic that is being studied at the National Institutes of Mental Health for treating severe treatment-resistant depression. And there are many new medicines that are also being studied for treatment-resistant depression. But I would say the vast majority of patients should be initially treated with one of the available antidepressants. Uh, particularly, uh, you may want one that uh, targets functional impairment, that produces higher rates of remission. And then if they don't respond, they could be switched to a second antidepressant, or you can add psychotherapy to it. Sometimes we use adjuncts to treat uh, resistant depression, adjuncts like a, a, a low dose of lithium, a low dose of thyroid hormone, what we call T3, not the T4, thyroid hormone, uh, a, a low dose uh, of uh, an antipsychotic medication. Atypical antipsychotic medication is often added uh, as an adjunct to the antidepressant for treatment-resistant depression. We may combine antidepressants in some patients with treatment-resistant depression. So we have lots of choices, lots of different permutations and combinations, and you may need to see a specialist that specializes in treatment-resistant depression. Uh, usually family physicians, internists, nurse practitioners are not that well-trained to manage complicated cases. They may be very good at trying an antidepressant or two, but if you don't get better, you should definitely see a specialist, a psychopharmacologist, or somebody who specializes in treatment-resistant depression. We have lots to offer, and I would say with all the different choices, 90% of patients will get better. Thank you, and we'll be right back after this commercial with our final segment on depression. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. We are talking about depression with Dr. Prakash Masan, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Global Medical Education and chief scientific officer at the Atlanta Institute of Medicine and Research. Um, Dr. Mishan, you were talking a little bit, um, not a little bit, you were talking a lot about effective treatment for depression, and you had mentioned um, ECT, which in historically has gotten kind of a bad reputation in terms of it being um, effective. And maybe you could just clarify for our audience a little bit about the ECT today is not the ECT you saw in the movies in the 1950s. I'm so glad, Mary, you brought that up because ECT, unfortunately, has gotten a bad rap because of movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where you see Jack Nicholson getting ECT without anesthesia and convulsing, that's not the ECT of today. The ECT of today is in the presence of a trained anesthesiologist. Uh, The machines uh, control the seizure. We now have the ability to give very specific ECT currents based upon the individual's requirement and threshold. So it's not a one-size-fits-all like uh, I used to give Uh, 30 years ago when I was a resident, uh, today's ECT is very sophisticated. It's extremely safe. It's extremely effective. And all the major academic centers, uh, Duke, uh, where I was for 12 years, Mass General, the Mayo Clinic, uh, Cleveland Clinic, all the major academic medical centers have ECT services. and, and, And it's a very, very effective and very, very safe treatment. And you had mentioned um, during our commercial break that there are some new medications that are available for the treatment of depression. Um, and what would they be? So, as I had mentioned, Mary, before, there are still many unmet needs in the treatment of depression because only one out of three patients will achieve remission with their first antidepressant. And even after four levels of treatment in STAR-D, the large NIMH-funded study, one out of three patients at the end of four levels of treatment had not achieved remission. What that means is we still need more treatments for our armamentarium. And fortunately, in the last two years, there have been three new antidepressants that have been approved by the FDA, 
The first is a medicine called Fetsima. Levomilnacipran is the generic name. The second is a medicine called Vibrid. Belazidone is the generic name. And the third is a medicine called Brintelex. Uh, Vortioxetine is the generic name. And each of these three medicines is different. For example, Fetsima uh, targets the norepinephrine system in the brain, whereas the currently available antidepressants primarily target the serotonin system in the brain. So by targeting the norepinephrine system uh, much more than the serotonin system, it has a different profile. And for example, it's one of the antidepressants that improved functional measures of depression, the functional impairment, which as I mentioned was present in 97% of patients with major depression. So it was approved by the FDA for functional improvement, not just for symptomatic improvement. The second medicine, does it stimulate the norepinephrine system or does it suppress it? Uh, I'm sorry? Does it stimulate the norepinephrine system or does it depress it? How does that medication work? So what it does is it, it actually increases the availability of norepinephrine. So one of the uh, hypotheses of depression is in its simplest form is there is a deficiency of serotonin, a deficiency of norepinephrine, and that these antidepressants work by increasing the availability of serotonin, like the SSRIs, medicines like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa, uh, and then some medicines increase the availability of norepinephrine in addition to the serotonin uh, by, and thereby correcting this deficiency of norepinephrine. And that's what FEDSEMA does. It increases the availability of norepinephrine. Okay, thank you. The next, the next medicine, uh, vibrate velazodone, slightly different. It acts on the serotonin system, but it acts on one of the receptors of the serotonin system called the 5-HT1A receptor that's thought to have anxiolytic uh, properties. So by acting on that receptor, it... Uh, can alleviate anxiety symptoms that are associated with depression. They're very common in patients with depression. And the other, the other thing is that it causes very little weight gain and very little sexual dysfunction. Two of the side effects that are very common and very problematic can lead to noncompliance in patients with depression with the older antidepressants like the Prozacs, the Paxils, the Zolofs, the Selexas of the world. So that's something new and something different. And then finally... The third one, Brintelex or Vortioxetine, uh, it acts on the serotonin system, but not merely by increasing the availability of serotonin, but also blocking certain serotonin receptors and acting as an activator at certain other serotonin receptors. And the thinking is that they, that may play a role in improving some of the cognitive symptoms of depression, the forgetfulness, the decision-making problems the attention, the concentration. So each of these brings a slightly different wrinkle to the treatment of depression. Three excellent choices added to the armamentarium of drugs that we currently already have. So I think we can help more patients with these new choices and some of the upcoming drugs that are currently being tested. I think it's important that we let people know, how can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more or they have questions for you? So we, uh, you know, one of the things we've done is we have a wonderful website, 
Uh, it's called Global Medical Education. The URL is gmeded.com, G-M-E-D-E-D.com. And everything that I've said today and lots more uh, are answered on that website by some of the top experts in the world in the treatment of psychiatric illness. So, for example, uh, if you have a question about the diagnosis or treatment of any psychiatric illness, one of the world's experts provides an answer in less than four minutes in a video format. So you can go to the website. It's free. Uh, you can uh, see the latest research that's published, uh, which we post on our Facebook page, on our LinkedIn page, on our Twitter feed. Uh, lots of very valuable information, the latest information, uh, and you can email us on the website with, with questions and queries, uh, and we'd be happy to kind of uh, answer some of them. Thank you. And I, this discussion wouldn't be complete if we didn't include how depression affects families, because um, it does. It, when somebody is depressed in the family, it has an effect on everyone. So could you speak a little bit to that? Absolutely, Mary. You know, all your listeners will agree with your statement 100%. Depression is not just the illness of the individual. It is the illness of the individual family, of the individual friends, of the individual's colleagues, and everybody else. Disruption in family life is almost always a complication of depression. And functional impairment, uh, including a family functional impairment, occurs in 97% of patients with major depression. So family members can actually be very helpful to patients with depression. The first is they should never tell a patient with depression, you know, if you just uh, talk positive, if you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, everything will be okay. That doesn't work. That's like telling somebody with uh, heart arrhythmias or somebody with cancer. You know, if you just talk positive, if you just thought you don't have a heart problem or you do not have cancer, everything will be okay. That doesn't work for cancer. It doesn't work for heart disease, and it will not work for depression. What you can do, what you as a family member can do to help patients with depression is encourage the patient to seek help if they have depression. You can be a very important social support system for the patient, and studies have shown that social supports increase the level of serotonin in the brain just as antidepressants do, and they decrease the likelihood of future episodes. In fact, studies have shown that if teenagers who grow up in families with good social support systems, they have a less likelihood of developing depression in the first place in response to important life stressors. So social support is protective against developing depression, and it's therapeutic for treating depression. You should ask and encourage the patient to exercise. 30 minutes a day of exercise is an antidepressant. It will help patients get better. You should ask them to avoid alcohol and drugs. They are depressogenic. They interfere with the action of the antidepressant medicine. So these are simple tools. Encourage the patient to seek pleasure. Do one pleasurable activity a day. Be more resilient. Teach them some tools for resiliency that's protective against depression. So there's a lot that family members can do to help patients get better from their depression. Thank you, Dr. Masan. This hour has flown by, and it's been really informative for myself, and I'm sure it has been for our listeners as well. 
I want to encourage everybody, if you're experiencing any of the symptoms that we've described today, uh, go to your local PCP, um, go online for depression screening. Um, this is an important illness that you don't want to ignore. So, Dr. Michon, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Thank you so much, Mary, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners, and I hope they find it helpful. Thank you. Have a good week, everyone. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.